Well, hello, listeners. Thanks for joining us again today. I have one of my literal favorite people in the world, uh, Rebecca Henderson. And Rebecca and I have known each other for a long time, but I haven't been connected as this book unfolded. And as I read it, I was so excited about the potential that's in it. And I think you're going to enjoy this. But Rebecca, you know, I love to ask people to describe their current roles in the world and why those are important to them rather than reading your resume. Would you please do that for us? Sure. I think I have three major roles in the world. One is being a Harvard Business School professor. And that's super important right now because the world is changing so fast and people are wondering who to listen to and how to weigh information. So being a Harvard Business School professor lets me say some things that other people can't say yeah. with at least an assumption that I'm not crazy, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> that I really do care about business and I'm really focused on business. Um, and so it, it, it gives me a degree of freedom and a place to stand that I think is, is pretty important right now. The second role I have is sitting on two big public company boards. That feels important to me because as I go around the world talking about reimagining capitalism, like what the heck, it's, um, it's important to me to be really grounded in the realities of business. To sit in the boardroom and have people look at the cash flow, the inventory level, how we take care of our employees in the middle of this pandemic, to be continually reminded of the nitty gritty of running a business and how difficult and exciting and important that is. So I, I think that's a really important role too. And the third is I'm, I'm a wife and a mom and that's really important to me, particularly as we're all living alone and so isolated. Uh, my bonds to my family, you know, help keep me human, help me remember that I'm not just a brain walking around, that there's a whole human life here. So uh, those are my three roles, professor, board member, uh, family member. Great. Those are all, I, I agree with how important those are and how uniquely you do them. Thank you. Um, so you have just put out a new book. It's not your first, but your um, your life has evolved during this time. And I would I would just love to hear. Well, let's start with you present in the book in the opening an articulation of kind of where we are now and how we got here and why we're in the mess we're in and what that mess is, uh, which I think serves as a really good way to build the rest of the book. I don't know whether it's like the problem statement or what it is, but I think it'd be helpful if you told people what that is and give them the title, full title of the book. The full title of the book is Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. And I started down this path because I thought the world was on fire. I was really, really concerned about climate change. I have been now for nearly 15 years. And it felt to me insane that business people weren't going to government and saying, look, climate change is a super big deal. None of us individually can deal with it. But if you do something sensible, like make it expensive, just a little bit more expensive to burn fossil fuels to compensate for the enormous health damage they cause and the big damage they're causing to the climate. If you could just kind of put in place this beautiful little policy, we could lick climate change. And I could not work out why business wasn't doing that. Why business wasn't 
banding together because climate change is not going to be good for business. And as I started to work on the problem of climate change, I started to notice that, whoa, there was another enormous set of problems that we needed to be banded together to address. And that was increasing inequality and the real decline in equality of opportunity. Right now, there are tens of millions of people born in the US who just don't have the same chances that others do. They're born in places with bad health care systems, with inferior education. They're born to parents who are working two jobs, who may not be able to afford to give them adequate nutrition. Right now, in the US, 40% of moms with kids under 12 say that they're not getting enough to eat. I mean, like, what is that? That's not good for business. It, for me, it betrays... It betrays sort of one of the fundamental, I call it the normative commitment of capitalism, which is a very long way of saying one of the deepest values that I think most business people share, which is capitalism is amazing because it gives you the freedom to do your own thing. It gives you the freedom to engage. And, you know, if there's massive inequality that's going through to the children, uh, that's, that's not fr- fair. That's not free. And uh, so those were my two big problems. I look around, climate change, inequality. What's the third problem? The third problem is the obvious solution to those problems, a vibrant democracy supporting a transparent, well-managed, transparent government. We don't have that. We have bitter partisanship. We have a rhetoric that says government is the problem or government is the solution to everything. I believe very strongly that markets and government need to be in balance. That if you look at the historical record as to what really underlays a thriving society, it's a balance. Yes, you need the free market. I love capitalism. I'm a professor at the Harvard Business School. I think it's an incredible source of creativity and innovation and drive. Mm. But if you just have the free market, if there's no one to make sure the rules of the game are kept, if, uh, if business gets to set their own rules, that's not free and fair. If, if people cannot participate because education and health is a huge problem, if the rich control politics, if we do nothing about the environment and we chew through the planet all in the name of short-term profits, that, that, that just doesn't seem to make sense. So our third big problem, we're wildly out of balance. The market is too powerful. Civil society and government are too weak. So I get a picture when you're doing that of a three-legged stool, which is stable. It, it's all the wrong stability, though. But they, they, each one is connected to the other. Was that the image you're holding when you say balance? Oh, so that's such a good question. It, it's not actually the image in my head. What I think about first is that business and government out of balance. And that means we focus too much on the business end of the spectrum. Okay. And that's been translated into, it's all about me right now. And focusing on me right now is important and healthy in some circumstances. But people who do it all the time, we call them psychopaths. <laughs> um, you know, a healthy human and a healthy society is a balance between me right now and us and later. 
who's thinking about the good of the community, who's thinking about the long term. And, you know, in a healthy democracy, government is thinking about the whole community and focused on the well-being of the community over time. And so this imbalance between market and government has given us this problem and the symptoms climate change, environmental degradation, massive inequality, poverty at the bottom, a lost generation of people who are feeling so isolated and afraid, the escalating suicide rates. I could go on, they're all yeah, symptoms. Yeah. They're symptoms of this imbalance. And so the other thing I love about your book is, even though it's a bit depressing to read about all of that, it, it, it is very grounding. But the, most of the book covers stories and what you believe is a path out of this mess. Can you give us a bit of the path of how we're going to get to a better world? Sure. Carol, I'm, I'm so glad that was your experience of reading the book. Because I think so many books are written like, this is wrong and that's wrong and here's why. And I'm, I'm really a pragmatist. I'm an engineer. You need to understand what's wrong so you have a sense of how to fix it. But... I'm all about the fixing yeah. and I'm all, I'm not about some kind of grand vision of the perfect world. Right. I'm about what all of us can start doing right now that I think would plausibly make a difference and might together add up to changing the whole system. So, so that's what the book is about. Yeah. Um, so the general arc of the book in two minutes <laughs> It's 28 one-and-a-half-hour sessions when I teach it. Uh, and it took me about 15 years of research to get here, but, but that's fine. Okay, yep, yep. three minutes. What's the path forward? Five steps. Okay. First step, do well and do good. Some people call it create shared value. Build a business that at its core is yes about returning money to investors, otherwise you don't get to play, but also has a broader mission in the world. Step two, whoops. Suppose we got 30% of all the firms in the world to do the right thing, to start to address social and environmental problems as the core of their business. That would make a huge difference. We can talk more about it, but just intuitively, it creates new patterns and new probability. It awakens imagination. It drives the kind of innovation which will let us transform the whole system. So individual action is unbelievably important, but it's not enough. It's not enough because some problems we can only address together. Some problems um, can only be addressed if investors will let us go after them. So how do we think about that? So my second step is all about trying to think about holding the need to make money and the need to really rebuild a better world in tension. The phrase I use is purpose. I talk about purpose-driven firms. You know, there's so many meaning of, of that word, but, but the meaning, I have in mind is you build a business not because you want to make money. Money is a means to an end. The end is to build something thriving and to help build a thriving community. So that as a business person, your attention is of course on your business, but also out to this broader world of which you're a part. And you think of yourself as being part of that broader world. Well, why does that help? 
Well, one of the ways it helps is when you see problems that you can't solve alone, step three, you cooperate with others to solve them. So if, for example, you're trying to use sustainable palm oil, because conventionally, conventionally grown palm oil is just dirty and abusive and is destroying the climate through all the emissions that uh, cutting down virgin jungle is causing, you can't do that. Turns out you can't do that on your own because sustainable palm oil is about 20% more expensive than the conventional stuff and consumers won't pay for it. So there's no business case. But if you get every other major buyer of palm oil in the world to sign on to buying only sustainable palm oil, maybe you can shift the whole industry. You know, people have been trying to do this in beef and soy. There are collections of firms trying to clean up the textile, They're trying to clean up supply chains in the textile industry. People trying to do this in mining, so everyone pays attention to human rights. Super difficult, super hard, really important. Because some of these problems are just too big for any firm to solve alone. Now, as I've been working with firms in, uh, these are really purpose-driven firms, trying to think like, how does business help move the whole system? My firm is moving, all these other firms are moving, but whoa, we still have some people who for a variety of reasons have not got the memo. Mm -hmm. And so they're happy to keep cutting down the trees and treating people like disposable objects. And so what do we do? How do we, how do we move the whole thing? How do we get everyone to behave? in a way that will get us to where we need to go. And there are really two answers, I think. One is, uh, is maybe we can rewire finance so that investment money only flows to firms who are managed this way. That's an audacious goal. I don't think it's as crazy as it sounds on first hearing, and I'd be happy to chat more about that. Um, and the second is, let's rediscover government. <laughs> You know, all of this would be easier if we had sensible environmental regulation, if we had sensible way, uh, labor regulation. I want to pay my people more. I want to treat them with dignity and respect. If I'm competing with someone who's uh, paying absolute bottom dollars, so little that his employees are on food stamps, can hardly make ends meet, how, how can I compete with him? Why don't we make sure that the jobs are decent jobs? Why don't we make sure that I don't have to compete with someone who's using dirty energy or dumping pollution into the sea? Um, let's make sure that government gives us a level playing field, which if we play on it, will give us a sustainable and just society. So those are the five steps. Um, do the right thing in your own business. We can talk more about that. I think there are many very solid business opportunities in that space, and the effort to do that creates passion and focus in ways that conventional firms don't see. Be purpose-driven. Think about the big system. Band together, cooperation. I've seen it happen within cities where businesses said, look, we have a problem with education. How do we help? If we all chip in, what can we do? So banding together, rewire finance, and rediscover government. Wow. Um, I'm wondering, are, are there examples for us of where this is happening, at least in a couple of these? I mean, I think about a little bit in Europe where I've worked quite a bit. You do see government trying to level the playing field and get 
the businesses say, if we all have the same regulation, none of us suffer. Right. Um, I, I keep wondering, where do we go for these kind of, uh, and, and or maybe we have to invent it ourselves. What would you say to people who said, how do you do this? Who, where do I learn? So, and specifically, how do I work with government and get the regulation I need? Um, that's the one that I thought of both times you went through because it feels like I can see how the others can happen. Okay, that okay. may be why. Okay. Uh, because so, I've done all the others, right? Okay. But government feels hard. How do we get there? Okay. So let me give you some examples of like, how does business work with government in productive ways? Yeah. Um, working for the social good rather than to try and corrupt government, which is not so good. So um, a few examples. First, a number of cities have long histories of business working with the city government and the state government. Hmm. So Minneapolis is pretty famous in this respect. There's a more than 50-year history of business getting together and thinking about what are the needs of the city and the region. They joke about it. They say, no one's going to move to Minneapolis for the weather. So we better make sure this city works. And so they're super motivated. Let's make the city work. And what they try and do is identify projects that would open new ways of acting and then act as, as it were, an R&D lab, a research lab. Hmm. So business will pay for the research. So, for example, they became aware that um, early childhood education has a very, very high rate of return that when you invest in teaching children before school, the social rate of return, their chance of leading a productive life, of paying taxes, of being someone who can function well in our society, just jump right up. And they looked at their numbers, that's such a business thing to do, right? They looked at the report and they were like, whoa, 22% rate of return on the dollar. We should be doing much more early childhood education. And uh, the local government said, well, that's a very nice idea, but like how and what should we do and what's the best way to do it? So what the business uh, community did was pay for those early experiments. They paid to, for example, send a coach to parents' homes to tell them about better preschool options. They paid for ways to grade preschools so parents would know where the good preschools were. They paid for early scholarships so that families who couldn't afford it could send their kids. It wasn't that much money, I forget. Like order of magnitude, three to $5 million, not huge. No. I'm not sure that's right, but it, but it certainly wasn't much bigger or much smaller. And those experiments were so successful that the local government was like, okay, we should put money here. And it helps build the political support, the community support, on the ground, business coming in as a partner and saying, how can we be helpful? And so that's did, one way this has happened. Yeah. And how did they calculate? Because there, there was a return to the city as a whole, and I don't know where the 22% was. Did the business calculate some reason it was also good for business? So business didn't calculate a number that was good for them, okay. but they thought, so they had a general sense that if you're going to be in Minneapolis, you have to have a workforce. You have to have a city that feels like it's working, that's not hollowed out where they're ghettos, where you know, very disadvantaged people live. They have deeply invested in keeping Minneapolis a functioning city. 
And so they saw the social rate of return. And the reason that number is important is they could then take that to the politicians and the community yeah. and say, look, this is where your tax dollars can go. We've done the experiments right here in Minneapolis. You can see the kinds of effects. Yeah. So that's one, you know, really successful example. Another is the push that's happening right now to regulate or price um, the emissions of greenhouse gases. So I don't want to get all technical, but if you think of fossil fuels as burning, uh, as throwing off a bunch of pollution, there's particulate pollution, all the certain small particles. In the US right now, that's causing between roughly 2 to 6% of GDP in health costs. Wow. Six million people die a year because of the junk that the fossil fuel industry pays out. And to be fair, from, uh, from the cars we drive and the way we heat our houses, I mean, our reliance on fossil fuels is causing all this health damage. And it's also in driving climate change. So a bunch of business people have gotten together and said, this is not funny anymore. You know, I could put it off, but when the governor of the Bank of England says climate change presents a catastrophic risk to the stability of the financial system, when all the big food companies I work with see that climate change is like an existential risk to the security of the long-term food supply, not to mention the hundreds of millions of people that are going to start migrating as the world warms up. And where are they going to migrate? They're going to migrate north. Yeah. And what kind of stress on the political system is that going to, going to, going to choose? Plus, Houston has three 500-year-old floods, 500-year floods in three years. Like, you know, I have friends who have houses in California that were burnt down in the fire and can't rebuild them because they can't get insurance. Right. So a bunch of business people are saying, this is not funny. We need to regulate this. Right. It doesn't cost that much. What blows me away, Carol, I think I said this to you when we first met, and at some level, it's what still motivates me. And it's such an economist engineering thing, but here it is. We could arrest the threat of climate change, clean up the atmosphere, greatly increase health for about two to 3% of GDP. I mean, it's tiny, right? And they're telling us now, I mean, the existing studies suggest that if we don't do something, we're going to be, you know, costing our children, not so long from now, like 20, 30 years from now, 10% of GDP, plus, excuse me, making parts of the earth uninhabitable, plus destroying the natural world. I mean, this is insane. Yeah. So yeah, no, I'm is. sorry, I'm ranting, but, but here's the bottom line. A bunch of business people are seeing that and they're getting together and they're going in groups to cities, to states, to nations. And they're saying, we want you to regulate the burning of fossil fuels. Right. We can afford it. Here are the business models. Here's the benefit. I'm uh, on the board of a NGO called Ceres and we work with groups of business people and we introduce them to um, local reg state regulators, to hearings, to governors. And, you know, as a business person, when you walk into those kinds of settings, people listen. Yeah. You know, often individuals think you can't make that much difference. But as I've got more engaged with this, I've begun to realize if you can have like 10 business people go to your local, uh, go visit your local congressperson or go to a hearing on a bill. And if you keep going, 
it's going to pass. Not always, but often. After the president withdrew the U.S. from the uh, climate agreement, the global climate agreement that was signed at Paris, a group of business people got together, called themselves We're Still In, and they started going city by city, state by state. And they have got those states and cities to commit to reducing greenhouse gas pollution Mm. by about 90% of the original Paris commitment. And that's all local voluntary action, business and government working together. And the third, the third story I can tell you, but I'm just going to tease it. And then I'm going to. Whoops. We just started to think about this problem. I noticed that in history, there had been moments when society was on the edge of major conflict or even in the beginning of disintegration. And there'd been a few times in history when the private sector had stepped up and said, if we just let this go, the whole of society is going to unravel. We are willing to sit down with civil society, with representatives of employees, with the government, and think about how we structure this. And in the book, I talk about Germany after World War II, Denmark in 1890, when the whole society was poor and just lost a major war, was falling apart and Mauritius in, uh, in the late 1960s, which was an island everyone thought would erupt in flames when the British gave it independence and did not, yeah. largely because of the response of the private wow. sector. So this is why I call you, um, you know, practical optimist, because you, you have real stories of people who've done things and they, do, they are good teachers. All right, I want to switch gears on you just a little bit because I have known you for some years. I got to be involved in watching you leave MIT, go to Harvard, and I would say switch the focus of your innovation into the kind of work you're in now. It's not like you went from innovation to sustainability because you brought all that innovation. I think there's something about that transition that is indicative of what we're doing now with business. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your own personal migration movement from one kind of world for the engineer and the economist into the one you have lived in now the last 15 years. Sure. It felt like jumping off a diving board and the, you know, hoping there was water underneath. That's not quite fair because I'm a tenured university professor, so my livelihood was not at risk. But it did feel as if my identity, my sense of who I was, my status, my standing in the profession, whoa, we get so wrapped around these these things, you know? Like everybody knew my name, everybody was polite when I went to conferences, graduate students would send me friendly emails. I mean, life was so comfortable and so easy. And, and I just thought this, is, this doesn't make any sense. We have to change the world, the way we run this economy. I have to help. I can't tell you that it was a reasoned decision. Sometimes people say to me, oh, that was so courageous. And I'm like, I don't think so. I just felt that I had to do it. And, and it was costly. For several years, my colleagues thought I had lost my mind. And I suspected that was the case. But recently, it's so interesting, Carol, two people, two of my old colleagues have said to me, um, Rebecca, 
I'm terribly sorry, I, I, I thought you had lost your mind, but it turns out that everything you were going on about is really important. <laughs> I mean, it's been so interesting. I mean, literally to have my colleagues apologize to me for thinking that I had just lost it. And um, I was afraid I'd lost it too, right? I mean, when I first started teaching this class, Reimagining Capitalism, yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. I had been studying innovation for years. I knew about innovation in large companies. Okay, well, and small companies. Okay, great. What does that tell you about how to remake the world's political system? Well, almost nothing. Right. So it does tell you a bit, which I'll come back to. Okay. But, uh, but so I started at the beginning. I started with, so what is something I'm sure business can do that would make a difference? So I began by just looking at case studies of people who were really bringing their whole selves to work, really motivated by purpose, and trying to build a firm that would make a difference. And you and I worked together at Merida, that amazing firm, yeah. where the CEO said, I think I can build a business that produces beautiful rugs and create jobs for these incredibly skilled craftsmen in Falls River who are otherwise like looking at working at McDonald's. Yeah. And I mean, she really fought, you know, and grew that business over years. And so I did a bunch of work like that, really meeting people who were doing this. And then over time, I discovered that, you know, I took the next step and the next step and the next step. And pretty soon you've read like as much political science and, and history as you can lay your hands on. And you're thinking, well, no one else is saying this, so I may as well say it. Yeah. You know, I think there's always this thought that someone else will fix things. Someone else is behind the curtain. There's yeah. no curtain. I mean, this is it. This is us. It, it's not that there's some grand plan or that the people in charge know what they're doing. Right. They're kind of making it up as they go along. <laughs> so, right. You know, I think I've really come to believe that two things. One is that Taking these kinds of risks, I mean, it's so easy to say. Two in my life, really changing my research and my work, and then um, moving between universities, which doesn't sound like a big risk, but, uh, but was a big deal for me, and, and was fabulous. I mean, both risks have completely renewed my life. Yeah. At a time when so many people seem stuck, I feel like I'm just getting going, and it's incredibly exciting. So. Yeah. That was fun. Well, that's why I wanted asking. to tell that story because I think it's there are a lot of people, and even in the education world right now, and I have a lot of folks because my newest book has a piece on the regenerative educator and what it means to regenerate your life and what is education really about. And I wanted your story because <laughs> I watched you do a lot of that and it inspired me. There's one little piece of this I want to add to, and then one last question, and we're going to run out of time here. Um, the course had its own evolution. The mm -hmm. course was the creation of the book. It was the creation of you and your new role. I mean, that course so much represented. And the, I think even the title of the book, at least the part Reimagining Capitalism, is very indicative of the reimagining of how you teach and what you teach and how you bring students in. Because your first course was optional and waited to see who showed up, right? And I mean, maybe that's not changed, but I think that role of that course, just a few paragraphs I think would help and how that changed what you wrote in the book. 
So when I began teaching, I felt very tentative. It really wasn't clear to me that business could make a difference against these big problems. And what's happened over the course of the nearly 10 years I've been teaching it is both I and the students became more and more confident that business could make a difference um, against these huge environmental, social, and political issues, that business could be a powerful force for good, and that one could say that without giggling. I mean, in the beginning, the students used to be like, what, Rebecca? Like, come on, you're kidding. Um, and I think the course has retained a, a, a spine of cynicism, healthy cynicism, that yeah. this is not about just sort of let's love one another right now and we're going to be fine. We're in a very difficult position. We need to take our love and our energy and our passion, I tell the students, and build a business that is better than conventional business yeah. with a really strong business case that really is connected to its customers, that has, you know, you manage your numbers, you make your targets, you've got to be a good business person, but you're simultaneously called to play a broader role in the world, both in how you're building company and maybe a little bit beyond that. You know, the power of individual business leaders showing that you can treat people in a different way, using what I call in the book high road employment systems, which just means people are human beings, not disposable objects, design your firm as if that was really true. Um, and the students became more and more open to the idea that this might make a difference. And, you know, three years ago, I started teaching, you know, a massive note on inequality and the politics of inequality and how business can help, which is a sort of huge topic, which, you know, five years ago, I wouldn't have touched. So it's got sort of more intense. It's got more political, not in the sense of partisan, but in the sense of people being really interested in civics. Like, how does government work? What is it supposed to do? How is it related to the free market? How do we think about that? Those were issues that I didn't think about when I started. And now I think they're critical. And it feels to me, this is really the illusion of central position, but it feels to me as if the world has moved with me. That 10 years ago, it was really hard to have some of these conversations. But now, living as we are in the middle of this pandemic, the idea that our society is out of balance and we need a good government and we need to think of ourselves as a community and business can help, that, that doesn't sound so crazy. No. It, it sort of sounds sensible, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. right? No, I agree thinking. with you. I, I feel like the world has moved. The center of gravity is in a different place than when I started having these conversations. And so... And I knew that had happened with your class. And it, it's also, I think, optimistic, hopeful to people to know. Yeah. The Harvard Business School can do that, right? Oh, and the dean asked me to take over the required first year course in leadership, governance, and ethics because he thought, and a bunch of the faculty thought, these issues were super important and everyone who goes to the business school should have some familiarity with them. Right. I taught that inequality note you know, like here's all the issues with inequality and should business care? We taught that this spring to the entire first year course, 992 people or whatever it is. And the same with climate change and we have a note on purpose. And, you know, it's, it's we've come to believe at the business school that 
business is a political and social actor and that like it or not, people are going to come to you and say, what is business doing? And every business leader should be able to answer that question. So that leads me to my last question. You have a son who's a millennial, Harry. Uh, you, I have a grandson, Max, who is, I think, the first year of the next round. He's about to be 21. And I don't know how active Harry is politically now. Max is incredibly active politically. And I think there's something that, given how many years you and I have been in this world of trying to bring these conversations about, that they're going to do it differently. Or they we might give them some wisdom, but they may be ahead of us in some ways. And I'm wondering what you see with this neck, this millennial and the next generation and what it is you're thinking about how you engage them, what they bring. I mean, anything in that territory, 20% of my listeners are of that age. What do uh, we say to them? So those are my students, um, you know, and they are amazing. Uh, our students are so smart and so thoughtful and so engaged. So you, you don't have to persuade them that the world has issues or that capitalism is not perfect. I mean, they really know that. And I think they also have a sense that they might be able to make a difference. My son, Harry, is not super political. He votes, but he's not out there knocking on doors. Yeah. But when he graduated from college, he graduated with a double degree in engineering and computer science. And I said to him, because I was an MIT professor and I studied innovation, okay, you need to go and work at Google or Microsoft or Facebook, a big company, learn the ropes, you know, start climbing the ladder. That's where the action is. He looked at me and he said, mom, don't you believe what you teach? <laughs> he, uh, he went to work for a woman-owned, mission-driven fintech in New York called Elvest. <laughs> you know, and... That was the choice he wanted to make. Yeah. And, and the students, the students we see at Harvard, they so want to find a way to put their skills to work. I think you're right. They won't do it quite the way we would. I do find that, well, they're polite enough to say that having the chance to talk through how individual efforts could add up to changing the whole system is super useful. So I wrote my book for these, I was going to call them kids, but they're not kids. I wrote them for the, this book for these young adults. I wrote it for my son. Yeah. And the best compliment I've had on the book, like the best by far, is the day after I gave a copy to Harry, he stayed up late reading it. <laughs> that is like... <laughs> There is no better compliment, Um, you know, and I was just thrilled, just thrilled. So I think, I think we can be helpful, but um, it's an amazing generation and I I think they will build something new. I think this is a perfect place to end, to go from the idea down to the real life people who wrote this book for. Thank you for being willing to do that aspect of it. And thank you so much for joining me. Do you have anything you want to say in closing to the folks who are reading your book? I I do have something, yes. Action seems scary and difficult, and it is easy to despair. But inaction is the solution to despair.
doing something, A, it will make a difference. If we all do nothing, we're going to go nowhere. But more importantly, as soon as you start to act, you start to feel better. You find other people like you. I have met the most amazing people doing this and they have filled me with hope, not optimism. I don't think this is a done deal, easy, we've got this, but hope, we can make this work. And that's what keeps me, people say sometimes, how come you're so upbeat? You read about climate change all day, every day. (laughs) And I go, you know, because I'm trying and thousands and thousands of people are trying and the human race is not stupid and we will get this lovely that's a great place to end thank you so much rebecca for joining me for the responsible capitalist 